Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. God is for us, who can be against us? That's where we ended last week. We got as far as, if God be for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul is going to continue making that argument. He's going to argue that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But along the way, as he's making that argument, he's going to pull out a very odd bit of Old Testament. In fact, he's going to reach back to the Psalms, and he's going to pull out a really interesting phrase. And the first time that I came across it, I thought, what was going on in Paul's head? that he would decide at that moment in this glorious letter as he's writing through his letter to the Romans and he's saying all these marvelous things about how we cannot be separated from the love of God, an argument that we're going to look at more closely this morning. What made his brain go to this particular psalm? It's Psalm 44, and you can turn there. You know, we love the language of shepherd. God's a shepherd. Christ is a shepherd. We love the good shepherd theology. We love the notion that he would leave the 90 and 9 and he would go find the one lost sheep and put that sheep on his shoulder and carry him back into the fold. We love that. We love the thing that we sang this morning. That's why we sang the 23rd Psalm this morning, by the way. The idea that thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The Lord is my shepherd. I'll I'll never have any want. We love that kind of shepherd-sheep theology. Of course, we'll oftentimes point out that sheep don't have any natural defenses. They don't have any sharp teeth, and they're not real bright. And then we'll all kind of chuckle about that and think, oh, yes, that's true of us. We all just kind of fall into a ditch and we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. All of that is true of us. But actually, the biblical theology of sheep and shepherd is even deeper than that. And if you can understand what we're about to see in Psalm 44 and why Paul brings it up in Romans 8, you'll begin to understand that there's really, truly, genuinely nothing in this lifetime that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Most of the time when people feel like saying, where is God in all this, it's when things go wrong, things go bad. Things go south on us and we start thinking, where is God? My life is supposed to be good. Everything in my life is supposed to be going along swimmingly. That's what I was promised when I came to church or when I came to Jesus. Somebody somewhere told me I was going to get a bigger house and a better car and all my bills would be paid and my children would run faster and jump higher and be better looking than every other child on the block. Somebody promised me that. <laughs> and it's, it's not working out that way. 
And so why? Why isn't it working out that way? Well, the answer is in the real biblical sheep-shepherd terminology, if you look at all of it. If a person owns sheep, sometimes he will hire a shepherd, sometimes he will shepherd by himself and take care of his sheep. But if a person owns sheep, he doesn't just own them so that the sheep can have a better, happier, healthier life. He owns sheep for a great many reasons. Sometimes the reason he owns those sheep is just for food. Sometimes he owns those sheep because he needs the wool, but he also needs the mutton. Sometimes the reason that people in the Old Testament owned flocks of sheep was because sheep were considered one of the clean animals that you could take to God as a sacrifice. In other words, one of the reasons for owning sheep was for the slaughter. And none of that, whether food, whether slaughter, whether for the shearing, none of those things change the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. In fact, the sheep still belong to the shepherd. The fact that the sheep belonged to the shepherd was the reason that the shepherd could choose your food, you're slaughtered. I didn't mean to point at you, Betty, when I said you're slaughtered. And I didn't mean to point at you when I said you're food. But it is because the sheep belong to him that he can designate which sheep die and when. Do you get the picture here? Because that's what Psalm 44 is going to say, and that's what Paul picks up in Romans 8. As part of his theology of how nothing can separate us, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? Right in the midst of all that, he says, nothing's going to separate us. No trials, no tribulations, no distresses, none of the problems of life, height, depth, even demonic hordes. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then, of course, people will say, but my life is tough. Things are going hard for me. There's difficulty in my life. Where is God in this? And he's going to jump to Psalm 44 and say, we are sheep counted for the slaughter. But again, being sheep counted for the slaughter doesn't change the relationship. We're still owned. We are still owned by the shepherd that owns us, and he's the one who gets to decide who gets slaughtered, who ends up being food, who ends up eating in happy green grasslands and laying down beside still waters. It's up to him. So just because things go wrong, just because things go bad, that is not a demonstration that God has separated himself from you. That is further evidence in Paul's mind that God is utterly and completely with you because this is what the absolutely sovereign God has determined for your life. Now we can talk about the theology of why trouble comes into the life of a Christian and that the trouble that comes into our life feeds our faith, increases our 
dependence on God, that all of these good theological things come about as a result of the troubles that come into our life. But the reality is that trouble does come into our life and the trouble that comes into our life is not proof that God has abandoned us. That's all part of what Paul is getting at in Romans 8. That neither height, depth, neither the troubles of life, neither the demons, neither the tribulations, neither the hardships of life can separate us from the love of God. We have to remember when we're in the midst of those hardships that that doesn't mean it's separation. We just have to count ourselves sheep for the slaughter. Now, that's never a pleasant thought. But we have to count ourselves as belonging to God so that God can do whatever he wants with us. After all, we belong to him. The problem, when I say we have to count ourselves as sheep for the slaughter, the reason people kind of recoil at that, and for those of you who are not really familiar with the notion of an absolutely sovereign God, you're going to recoil at the notion that that Jim just said, and the Bible says that we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. I mean, come on, lighten up. We just got here. We've just started the morning. Couldn't you maybe start somewhere else? Start with laying down in green pastures. That'd be good stuff. The reason that people recoil at that notion is because we, sinful humans, egocentric humans, think too highly of ourselves. The reason we don't like that notion is because we think, but I'm something special. Sure, there might be other sheep who who are going to go through trouble. Sure, there might be other sheep that get accounted as food. Sure, there's others that get sacrificed, but not me. I'm the lay down by the still water sheep. I'm the happy go lucky, everything goes good for me. Bah, sheep. I'm that guy. <laughs> Don't be telling me that I'm accounted for the slaughter. But the reality is, if you understand that God is absolutely sovereign, which means he's absolutely in control, he's a king on the throne, doing whatever seems right to him, and if you look at his history of how he has dealt with his people, the people that he loved, the people that he chose, if you look at the way he has dealt with them, you see that he has brought all kinds of trouble and difficulty into their lives, ultimately for their good and for his glory. And if you account yourself as nothing, then whatever God does with you is fair game to you. And you'll stop thinking that just because the trouble came, God isn't with you. I got a text this week from a young man who said, how do I increase my faith? And how do I quit being scared of the future? And I wrote back to him and said, well, Paul is about to tell us in Romans 10 that faith does come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Spend more time in the word of God. The more time that you actually do spend in the word of God, I didn't write this, but the more you spend time in the word of God, the more you start understanding the proper relationship between you and God. And the proper relationship between you and God is he's righteous, holy, king on his throne, doing whatever he wants, and you're not, and you're his, and he can do whatever he wants with you. And just because he does what he wants with you does not prove that he's not with you. 
the trouble that he brings into your life, he also goes through with you, which is why the Bible includes so much talk about the trouble and the difficulty of this life. So that is what Paul is going to confront in Romans 8, that there's nothing that can separate you. If God is for you, who can be against you? There's going to be all this against you stuff that happens in your life. There's going to be all the difficulties of life. If you have not yet experienced the difficulties of life, live a little longer. The trouble's coming. If you're young enough that you don't know the trouble yet, well, good for you. Talk to an old guy like me for a while. We'll tell you. Talk to Steve. He'll tell you. Trouble's coming. Anybody want to testify? Amen. So, Psalm 44, turn there. Now, Psalm 44 is not a psalm of David. It is a mascal, which means that it is a very precise writing, written by the sons of Korah. So, precise writing from the sons of Korah, and it's written from the perspective of the children of Israel, the chosen people of Israel and their armies being routed by their enemies. And so the writers of this psalm are saying, where is God in all this? And yet, midway through it, their attitude kind of changes and they recognize God is in the middle of it. And this is right where Paul gets the theology that we're going to see in Romans 8. Now, some people have attempted to date this psalm and said, well, this must have taken place during the captivity in Babylon, except that you can tell from the writing that there's also a standing army in Israel, which there wasn't when they were in the Babylonian captivity. So it's probably before the Babylonian captivity at some point, but we don't know what particular battle. What we know is the history of Israel is the same all the way through the Old Testament, which is that they forget about God. They chase after foreign gods. They marry foreign women. They interact with the other nations. They forget about God. And the way that God corrects them is that he brings trouble on them. He brings foreign armies down on them. He delivers them into the hands of their enemies. And then they cry out to God. They recognize the God of their fathers. He delivers them. He restores them. He puts them back in the land. He makes them safe again. A couple of generations pass by. Kids come along who forget what their fathers went through. And they go back to chasing foreign gods and forgetting about God again and And then God has to bring their enemies back down on them. And then they have to be under the hands of their enemies again. And then they cry out to God. And then God restores them again. And that is the cycle of the whole Old Testament. So this psalm appears to be written during one of those periods where they are being subjected to their enemies. And they start by crying out, where's God in all this? And then they get the attitude adjustment. And the attitude adjustment leads to the conclusion, oh, we belong to God. We're sheep counted for the slaughter. And that's exactly what Paul picks up in Romans 8. Got it? it. That was all introduction. And I'm feeling better today, so it doesn't count against my time. 
Psalm number 44, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us the work that thou didst in their days, in the days of old. Any Hebrew worth his salt would know the stories of God's deliverance from Egypt. They would know about going through the Red Sea. They would know about manna in the wilderness. They would know all the deliverance that God had done for the nation to bring them into the land and plant them. And so they would know all of that. And he says, we've heard all of it growing up. We've heard about the way you've delivered our fathers in the past. But we're in trouble now. And where is that deliverance now? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever reached that point of going, but where is God now? I hear about the miracles. I read about the miracles. I know about the healing. I know about God doing those things. But where is it now? Well, that's the same thing the psalmist is saying. Oh, God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the works that thou didst in their days, in the days of old. Thou with thine own hand didst drive out the nations, and then thou didst plant them, our fathers, planted them in the land, made them safe in the land. Thou didst afflict the peoples, the enemies, and thou didst spread them abroad. For by their own sword... This is the people, the fathers, who were planted in the land by their own sword. They did not possess the land because their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of thy presence, for thou didst favor them. You did grace them. You were kind to them. That's the only reason that our forefathers got delivered and were planted on the land. They didn't do it through their might. They didn't do it with their sword. They did it because you were just good to them. In other words, the implication is, where's that goodness now? Where's the favor now? We need it now. Verse 4. Thou art my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. In other words, we're, we're getting the crud kicked out of us right now. And, and we know that it's up to you what happens. Whatever happens, that's what you've decreed to happen. And so w- will you please decree some victories for us? Because it's not going good for us right now. Verse 5. Through thee, we will push back our adversaries. Through thy name we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But thou hast saved us from our adversaries, and thou hast put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to thy name forever. Selah which means pause and think about that. So, so far, the psalmist has told us, look, it's going bad for us right now, but we've heard the stories of your deliverance, your kindness, your grace to our forefathers. Why don't you please bring some victories to us right now? And once you do that, we will give you the thanks. 
We'll recognize that it's not our sword. It's not our hand. We'll recognize that it's all your grace that did it. And we'll thank you for it. Just please get busy doing it. And then they said, think about that. Verse 9. And yet thou hast rejected us and brought us to dishonor and dost not go out with our armies. Thou dost cause us to turn back from the adversary. In other words, instead of routing our enemies, we're running away from them. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. Our riches, what you've given us, what we've worked hard for, ends up in the hands of our enemies. How is that fair? Thou dost give us like sheep to be eaten. There's the attitude adjustment. Why are we being routed? Because, well, we belong to you and it's up to you and you could grace us and you could empower us and we could dominate our enemies, but we're not. And so it's still up to you. You've decided that we are just (coughs) sheep to be eaten. Verse 11, thou didst give us as sheep to be eaten and has scattered us among the nations, among the Goyim, among the Gentiles, out of our own land. Thou dost sell thy people cheaply. In other words, we're not gaining any benefit from this, and yet we're being taken up and out of our land. And we have not profited from the sale of your people. Verse 13 Thou dost make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. Thou dost make us a byword. In other words, we're like a bad rumor among the nations and a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles. Because of the presence of the enemy and of the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. Okay, we're in the midst of a really bad situation. So bad, in fact, that our enemies are able to mock us. Because we are the people of Yahweh. We're the people of God. We're the people of this land. And now people are making open fun of us because of everything you're taking us through. But we haven't forgotten you. We're still coming to you. We're still crying to you. That's a reality, by the way, of life. It's one of the reasons that God takes us through difficult times. Be honest with yourself. When have you ever cried out to God more? When things were good? Never. Never. Nobody ever. Bluebird of happiness on your shoulder, rainbow, kumbaya. Everybody's like, hey, self-made man, I'm fine, I'm good. Well, I don't need God. But when you're in trouble, who do you cry to? You go right to God. When it's hurting, when it's really hurting down deep, you're crying to God. He knows that. If I can figure that out, he can figure that out. He knows the way to get you back to your knees the way to get you back to the position you're supposed to be in before him, where you recognize your need of him, is to cause some trouble in your life. 
Well, that's what's happened here. The trouble has come. The disasters have come. And they say, but we haven't forgotten you. We recognize that there's no way that we can get ourselves out of this situation. We still need you. In fact, we need you worse than ever. So there's the first part of the attitude adjustment. It's, okay, who is God? God is the one who decides to do whatever he decides to do, and we need him. But who are we? Keep reading. All this has come upon us, verse 17, but we have not forgotten thee. And we have not dealt falsely with thy covenant. These are the covenant people. They're under the Abrahamic covenant. They're under the Davidic covenant. They're under the Moses covenant. And they said, we are still your people. We haven't broken covenant with you. Our heart has not turned back. And our steps have not deviated from your way. And yet you have crushed us in the place of jackals. And you have covered us with the shadow of death. Even though we're your people. Even though we haven't broken covenant with you. Even though we've been faithful to you and followed after the words that you've said. Nevertheless, we're going through this struggle, this trial that they describe as the very shadow of death. Why are we going through that? If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hand to some strange gods, well, then would not God find this out? Wouldn't God, the real God, have figured this out if we did that? And if we did that, we deserve everything you're bringing on us. But we didn't do that. That, again, is exactly how we think. But God, I've been good. But God, I've been going to church. I've been reading your word. I've been praying regularly. But God, why is this kind of trouble befalling me given that I haven't broken covenant with you? I haven't broken faith with you. I'm still counting on your grace. Why would it be that despite all that, this is happening to me? It's all part of what I keep calling the attitude adjustment. Keep reading. Verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for thy sake, for God's sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's the attitude adjustment. Who's God? God's the one who can do whatever he wants. Who are we? We're his sheep. He can do whatever he wants with his sheep. He can make us lay down in green pastures. He can lead us beside still waters. He can make our life really good. And every once in a while, I feel like, oh, man, I'm having my Psalm 23 moment right now. Right now, everything is good. Everything is well. The wolf is away from the door and the bills are paid and everybody's healthy and everything's going just fine. And then every once in a while I have my Psalm 44 moments, which is I'm going through trouble. I'm going through struggles. I'm going through trials. Where is God in this? And what we need to remember is that God is on his throne doing whatever seems good to him. Sometimes he decides that you're a sheep for sacrifice. For what reason? For his glory. So that he gets all of the glory 
so that you run to him, so that you pray to him, so that you look to him, so that you become dependent on him again. Sometimes he has to take you through the troubles for your own good. Because he's not going to lose you. He's not going to forget you. He's not hiding from you. He's right in the middle of the trouble and he's utilizing the trouble for your good because if God is for you, who can be against you? So the troubles of this life, the trials of this life, the difficulties of this life can't separate you from the love of God. Despite the fact that you're going to go through them, he's right there in the midst of it with you. But sometimes you're considered sheep to be slaughtered. So then he cries out to God at the start of verse 23, arouse thyself. In other words, wake yourself up, get up, defend us. Why dost thou sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why dost thou hide thy face? By the way, does this psalm imply that God's a God who sometimes can hide himself? Yeah, sometimes God just hides himself. You know that the end of the Old Testament, there's a 400-year gap between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. During those 400 years, which we call the intertestamental period, there were no prophets in Israel. So there was no writing. That's why we don't have anything. We have history books, but we don't have any more prophetic books because during those 400 years, God was silent. And then you open the book of Matthew, suddenly God's talking again. Suddenly there's a prophet, John the Baptist. Suddenly the ultimate prophet, Jesus, is on the planet. And God's talking like mad while Jesus is on the planet. And then there's all these new prophecies until you get to the book of Revelation, 92, 96 AD. And then ever since then, God's been quiet again, but we've got his word. So he's speaking to us through his word. You want to hear from God? Read the word. You want to hear the audible voice of God? Read it out loud. <laughs> Our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of thy loving kindness. Now turn to the book of Romans. Now when we bump into that quote, you can understand why. We are going to start in Romans 8, verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Last week I told you the word things is added by the translators. That is all. That's pas. God makes everything work together for good to those who love God. Okay, now let's apply that to what we've been talking about this morning. Every once in a while there's going to be that Sheep slaughter food thing. Is God using that for your good? Yes. Yeah. Is he using that for his glory? Yes. Yeah. Has he separated from you in order for you to go through that? No. He's right there in the midst of it, sovereignly doing whatever he wants to do in order to bring you to the place where he wants to bring you. And what is his ultimate goal? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 
Let's think about the image of his son for a moment. Did Jesus have the happy life, the real easy going, everybody loves me, get along, good friends life? Did he have that? No, he had an incredibly difficult time here on planet Earth. None of you have suffered the way he suffered. None of you have lived with the utter contempt that he had to deal with in this lifetime. None of you were sheep to the slaughter the way he was. And yet he's the very son of God, and you're going to be conformed to the very image of his son. Do you think then maybe trouble, trials, difficulty is part of that process of conforming you into the image of his son? It's what he went through. Whom he foreknew, verse 29. Every time I read this, I have to say real quickly, that verse does not say he knew things about certain people. It's not what it says. It says he knew people. He foreknew in advance certain people. Not that he knew something about them. He knew them. It's the difference between me saying, I know my daughter. We have a relationship, a father-daughter relationship, which is the reason that I can say, I know who she is, I know what she's like, I know how she's going to behave, because we already have a relationship. I'm not saying I know what color her hair is. I know she needs to wear glasses. I know her sense of humor. That's stuff about her. I'm not saying I know stuff about her. I'm saying I know her. Same language Paul's using here. That God foreknew certain people. And whom people he foreknew. He also proorizo foreknew, predestined in advance to become conformed to the image. That word image is icon. To become the very image, the very iconography of Jesus. That's the goal for us ultimately. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the very image, the icon of his son that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he did predestine, those same people he also called. And those who he called, those he justified. And those that he justified, these he also glorified. We looked at all that last week. This is building up into Paul's argument now. He's saying God sovereignly is doing what he wants to do among his people. He has chosen some people. Those people he chose are the people who ultimately get glorified. So if God has done all that for you, who can separate you from God? Because they'd have to be bigger than God. They'd have to have more power than God. They'd have to be able to convince God that when he chose you, he made a mistake. Oops, God thought he was going to save Leon, but then Leon became, well, Leon. And God had to admit, oh, oh, I didn't know Leon would be so Leonish. And now that he's so incredibly Leon, how do I save him? And so God can't admit he's made a mistake. He chose Leon from the beginning, predestined him, and is ultimately going to glorify him, which means that God is for Leon. And if God be for you, who can be against you? That's verse 31. 
Verse 32, we're finally to the new stuff. There, I'm, I'm really genuinely done introducing now. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us there's that same word, pos. A minute ago I said that all things work together for good, and I told you that was all. It's just a general all. It's just pos. It's just, it's not all things. It's, it's everything. It's all. If God chose to sacrifice his son, the most precious thing he has, the most valuable thing he has, if he chose to make him sheep for the slaughter, if he made him the ultimate sin sacrifice, if he made him the one that men would detest and kill and nail to a cross, if he gave his only beloved son as a sacrifice for you, once he's given you that, the best thing he's got, how is he not going to give you everything else? Because he's already given you the best That's Paul's argument. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all? So if God has sacrificed Christ for you, then God has already given you everything necessary for your full, complete, eternal salvation and redemption. He's already done that for you. So then, what do you want from him that's greater than that? What do you want from him that is superior to that? He's already given you the best he's got. Therefore, he's going to give you the rest. He's going to take care of you. Day by day, whatever you go through, whatever your trials are, whatever the difficulties are, he's going to be with you. He's going to get you through it. Why not? He's already sacrificed for you. Of course he's going to take you through the rest of it. So then, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Okay, so God's chosen you. God has determined. He's written your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. He's determined that he's going to save you. He's already written your name down. Jeff Young, right there. He doesn't own an eraser. He can't take your name out of the book of life. He's already written you down. He's already decided that he is going to save you. If he's going to lose you, somebody has to go before God and say, Have you seen Jeff Young? Have you met him? Do you know what he's like? Do you know what he's done? Somebody has to bring a charge to God against Jeff that will stick. And who's going to do that? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? To God. Paul's logic is, God's the one who justified Jeff. So if God's the one who has already declared Jeff to be justified, to be righteousified, to be headed for his glorified state, if God has already made that determination, how is somebody going to talk God out of that determination? Because that would be tantamount to telling God, you goofed, you made a mistake, you chose Jeff. 
Have you seen Jeff? Well, nobody can talk God out of what he's already decided to do because, as I keep saying, he's sovereign, he's on the throne, he's a king, he can do whatever he wants. Am I talking to myself up here? No. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what Paul is saying? This is astounding theology. Righteousified. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified. So who's the one who's going to condemn him? Okay, so God is the one who justified you. What if you become determined, well, I can't convince God, but I can probably convince Jesus. I'm going to bring that charge up to Jesus. I'm going to tell Jesus, have you seen Jeff? Okay, your father pretty much likes him. But have you, I mean, you died for him. You gave your life for him. He claims he knows you. He claims he, he cares about. And have you seen the way he lives? Have you seen the way he talks? Have you seen the way he jokes? Have you seen the way that he has not invited people to his house tomorrow for dinner and cake? Have you seen that? No, okay. Have you seen what Jeff is really like? How are you going to bring a charge that Jesus is going to believe? Because Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised. Who's sitting at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. So if he's your advocate. If he's the one that's interceding for you. If he's the one that's pleading your case. Then you can't take the charge to him. So how is anybody going to adequately charge you in God's own presence, considering it's God who declared you justified, and it's Jesus who died and raised again for your justification? They're in complete unity about saving you. Who is going to come and say, you didn't mean him? It's impossible. Paul is stating an impossibility here. No one can bring a charge to God against his elect because he's the one that justified. Jesus is the one who died. Yes, that is again raised, who is sitting at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So then who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's agape. That's that sacrificial love that we've talked about. Who can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Now he's going to list the common things that people think of as a separation from God. If you're ever going to cry out, where is God in all this? You're going to be going through one of these problems. Shall tribulation. You know, that's the word philipsis in the Greek, tribulum in the Latin. It means a beating or a squeezing. It's a word that is used for squeezing grapes to get the juice out. It's a word that is used for beating a rug to get the dust out of it. It means to go through squeezing, trials, trouble, beatings. And he's saying, if you go through that, does that mean that you've been separated from God and Christ? Well, that can't do it. Shall distress... Troubles in this life, the things that make you cry out, the distresses of life. No. What if you're persecuted? What if it's difficult, if it's hard for you? What if people take away everything you've got? Well, 
those are the persecutions that happen in this world. Will those persecutions separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Famine, if you're, if you're finally just out of money, you've gone hungry. I mean, if you've ever been really starving, that's when you're going to cry out, where is God in this? How can God possibly be allowing me to go through this? I'm one of the favored sheep. Or nakedness, or danger, peril. Your whole life's going to come apart. Or even sword, if you're killed. What if you are killed for your testimony of Christ? What if you are persecuted? What if you are in distress? What if they take away everything you've got? What if you go through tribulation? Is all of that a demonstration, a sure proof that you are separated from God? From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Is that proof? Well, that's usually what people think is proof. That's usually when people will say, God's abandoned me because look how bad my life is going. And that's when you need the attitude adjustment of Psalm 44. Because you need to realize who you are and who God is. So Paul writes, just as it's written, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Once you get that attitude adjustment, once you get that notion of, wait, 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 it turns out I'm not the important one. It turns out God is the important one. It turns out that God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself, and he's doing it through his people. Look, if I said to you, you want to glorify God? How many of you would say, yeah. I mean, it's part of what we pray back here every Sunday, that God would be glorified. If I said to you, you want to glorify God? You'd say, yeah. And then you'd probably come up with a million ways in your head that you could glorify God. Yes, I want to glorify God. Make me the most famous preacher on the planet. (laughs) That's how I'll glorify God. Yes, I'll write a book that'll be a bestseller. Yes, I want to glorify God. What? Here, glorifying God sometimes requires laying down your life. And instead of thinking so highly of yourself and your own self-importance, you're willing to be counted among the sheep for the slaughter, for the glorification, the sacrifice of God. So if this world takes away everything you've got, if this world makes your life really hard, If because of your testimony in Christ, it turns out that you go through genuine tribulation, distress, trials in this lifetime, that's how you glorify God. And it's so opposite to the way we naturally think. Because we're egocentric, because we're full of hubris and pride, we immediately think, yeah, more me. And that's not the way that we're supposed to be thinking if we have a proper attitude about God, we'd be thinking more God. And whatever that takes, I'm willing to do. I count myself sheep for the slaughter. Let the world come at me. Let the world knock me down and make fun of me. Let the world take away everything I've got. Let the world ultimately kill me. And you know what? I win. 
I'm more than a conqueror. That's what Paul's about to say. So the proper attitude again is, God's everything. I'm nothing. I belong to him. Whatever he does to me is fair game for his own self-glorification. And once I'm in that state, nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So once I leave this world, I'm actually a conqueror, even though the whole world thinks that I was just a slaughtered sheep. You get it? Listen to the dichotomy Paul lays out. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but, but, verse 37, but in all these things, what things? The tribulation, the distress, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the peril, the sword, all the stuff that's going to come at you in this lifetime, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. How do we start? We conquer death. That's the real enemy. The real enemy is death. The real enemy is we're all getting older and sicker and ultimately everybody dies. But not everybody stays dead. Everybody's going to be resurrected and they're going to be judged. And if you are resurrected to the newness of life eternal and you're co-heir with Christ in the everything that he gets, oh, you conquer. You win. And by the way, once Jesus was killed and then got up again, could they kill him again? No. Once they kill you and you get up again, can they kill you again? No. Because in your new body, in your glorified body, that body like Christ has, your sin nature is destroyed. And you get that glorified body that isn't subject to sin or death anymore. Oh, you conquer. You become joint heir with Christ in the things that ears not heard, mouth hasn't spoken, your mind hasn't even conceived of the glorious things that God has planned for you, and yet they're revealed to us in the world. Oh, you, you conquer. You may not conquer in this world. In this lifetime, you may never write a bestseller. You may never be a big Hollywood star. You may never be the preacher of the planet. You may never be a super famous person. You may never be really, really rich. You may not have the kids that you wanted to have. Things might not go your way in life here on the planet. But if you count yourself as those who belong to God and God can do whatever he wants with you, oh, you you more than conquer. The good, good news is none of what happens on this planet right here, right now can separate you from the love of God. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? And you end up glorified. I can't wait to see glorified Jeff Young. I can't imagine what this... He's going to share his ice cream. I can't... I can't wait to see Christ be glorified. And if Christ is glorified through me, through my life, through my death, through the things that happen to here on this terrestrial plane, that, that's just too magnificent for me to begin to imagine. That I get to play some little part in God's glorification of himself? I can't imagine. But through all that, 
Oh, we're more than conquerors. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him that loved us. For I am convinced, absolute surety, last two verses for the morning. See, I really am going to let you go on time. I am convinced that neither death nor life, by the way, notice that contrast. Because he's going to set up several contrasts in these two verses. I have seen people lose their faith because of death, because some loved one died. When I was living in San Francisco, there were mudslides one year. And there was a mother who ended up on TV. In the mudslide, she lost her child. And the last thing she remembers is holding her child's hand as the mud swept the child away. And she looked into the TV camera and she said, now I know there's no God. I said, okay, she's losing her faith over death. Then again, I've seen people have very successful lives who just don't need God. Sometimes life will eliminate the concept of God. Sometimes death will eliminate the concept of God. That's why Paul starts with, I'm convinced that neither death nor life is going to separate us from God. Nor angels, those are the positive angels, but then principalities. Remember that Paul writes, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, the rulers of the darkness of this age. He's saying, neither angels nor demons, principalities and powers, nor things present, nor things to come, That's the answer to the question that I started with an hour ago. How do I have more faith so that I'm not afraid of the future? As you look into the word, you see Paul saying, neither the things that are right now nor the things that are coming, the future, neither of those can separate us. Nor the powers, nor height, All the way up to heaven, how am I ever going to get there? Or depth, all the way to hell, what if I'm going there? Nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing. He listed everything, nothing. There's nothing in this lifetime. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I was in Los Angeles years ago, and I heard a preacher preach that very text. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he read through the list. And he got all the way down to, or any other created thing. And then he said, it's up to you. You're the only one that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. To which I instantly thought, no, you're a created thing. You're in the list of no other created thing. You're right there in the list. Nothing, not even your own mind, not even your own stupidity can get you separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because it's a sacrificial love that has already been sacrificed. He is already the Lamb of God that has sacrificed for your sin debt. He is the one who is sitting at the right hand of God right now making intercession for you and pleading your case on those occasions when you do sin. And God has already chosen you before the foundation of the world, written your name down in the Lamb's book of life, and he has already deemed you justified and glorified. Look, you can't lose. That's all I'm getting at. 
But it's all God. It's completely God. It's totally God. It's not sheepish little you. You're counted as nothing but sheep. He's counted as the one who does whatever he wants. And what he did, thank God, was love you. And because he loves you, you can't be separated from that. And you, my sheepish little friends have never, ever heard better news in your whole silly little life. Amen. Amen. Questions? Yes, sir. Doesn't all this take you slingshot back to Job? Yeah. Every, you just keep turning him over in your mind. <clears throat> yeah, because it's the same story all the way through. It's the same story. God does whatever God wants to do. But he doesn't lose you. It takes you also to the writer of Hebrews. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on and says, if you haven't experienced that chastening, that's proof positive you're not a son of God. Because all the sons of God go through the chastening. So the Bible keeps saying it. And then we go through the chastening and we go, where's God? Why is God doing this to me? But just remember, sometimes you're just a sacrifice for God's glory. And that's important to remember. Anything else? So it ended good. It started with a lot of sheep for the slaughter. Maybe you're just mutton. Several of you are just mutton heads. I know that. Sorry, sorry. Did I say that out loud? I'm supposed to say those things with my inside voice, and then it, it just bleh, it comes out. But it ends well. It ends with nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that's, that's awfully good news. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.